Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. I think that it's likely true that the believer rarely takes hold of or considers the immensity of their faith. It's rare that they consider the immensity of what they believe in and what they believe for, what they've taken under themselves. Our faith encompasses more than we can imagine. It's something that lays hold of eternity. It's something that claims the fabrication or the making up of a whole new creation and a whole new universe of which we will reign over and acquire for ourselves. The Bible says that the meek shall inherit the earth, but it also tells us that the Lord Jesus is coming again. And when God comes again, it says God is going to refashion or remake all the heavens and the earth and we will reign with him over all things that he's made. Now that's, that's rather amazing. That's a faith that encompasses something quite grand and quite wonderful. And to have that kind of faith, you, you have to believe in something immense, immense, far beyond yourself. And you have to believe in it against what you see and what you experience and what you are. And you have to believe in it for something grand and great. And I don't know that we always consider these things. In our scripture reading today, we read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let me read to you verses 4 through 6 again. I want you to see how it is that when we come to the Lord Jesus and we believe in him, fallen, broken, marred in our sins, the Bible says dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually separated from God, with nothing to offer God, we trust him to do something within us, something wonderful within us, in which he brings us forward to himself and he gives us new life. And so... Here's what Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Now that's, that's quite a faith. That's quite a belief. A belief that I was spiritually separate from God, spiritually dead from God, spiritually unresponsive to God. But God has intervened and come into my life. And through faith, God has made me alive and given me new life. And not only that, that God has thrust me to the very throne room of heaven in which I reign and I rule and I sit with Christ above all the heavens. 
Now that's part of our faith. Go on and read what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Not only do we believe that God has raised us up and given us new life, but we believe that God in that new life has made us a whole new creature. That we who were so intertwined with brokenness and sin that we could not escape and God extracted us from this death of sin and then put within us a being or a creation that was new in every way. Whole new creation. And so we read in verses 8 through 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Now here's what your faith is. It's not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, we are a new creation, and that's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a number, another one of those verses we lay hold of. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, everything has become new. It's a rather remarkable thing to believe God for. A rather remarkable thing to set your sights upon by faith. Uh, this faith, this wonderful faith, is illustrated for us, according to Paul here, by the life of Abraham. In fact, it's so wonderfully brought forward by Abraham that he is called the father of all those who believe, the father of those who have faith. His faith was a faith that believed God for a promise. He believed that God could be believed and that God could be trusted to keep his word, and by that faith we are told that he was made righteous before God. This morning we're going to consider this faith of Abraham that made him righteous, and in considering this faith, we're going to come to understand how it is that our faith as well encompasses something so bold and so grand as to believe that in the immensity of faith, we might be made right with God, we might be raised from death into life, we might become persons who are whole new beings before God. Individuals who are set above the heavens to reign and rule with God. So as we come before this and we look at Abraham's faith, there are certain things we have to notice. And the first thing we need to notice here is that Abraham's faith rises from one grounding point. It rises from the ground of what he understood to be true about God. Without a robust confidence in who God is, there can be no faith or belief in what God promises. And so his belief first did not lay hold of the promise. His belief held of and took hold of the promiser. It was the ground of who God was that anchored Abraham's faith. So the first thing we say here is the ground of Abraham's faith was confidence in God. And in this passage that we're looking at, Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to point out two points of confidence that Abraham had in the presence of God. Two things about God that he was certain of and sure of that then guided his life of faith and guided or gave birth to this faith that made him righteous before God. And there are two things, and the first thing is this. Abraham believed that God was a God who gives life to the dead. God was a God who gives life to the dead. Now, that's not a small point of belief. That's not a small point of faith. We live in a modern world in which we are largely cut away from the images and expressions of death. We enjoy and eat our food without considering how it comes to us. We enjoy that steak, and we're never at the moment in which that steak was initially prepared for us, right? We don't face and confront death, and we don't even see it in our own lives. A person might become sick that has grown in our household, and they're taken away to some hospital, and there are individuals who oversee them and provide them hospice care, and very often, we're not there. We don't witness and see these things, but Abraham would have witnessed and seen those things, and he knew what death was like. 
I remember when I was a seminary student, one of our assignments in one of our class just for pastoral training was to go and spend a day in the morgue. Now that's a rather stunning place to be in, but it's never been anything like that. And to go back in the morgue and to see who the latest arrivals were in the morgue. And so there's a row of what looked like filing cabinets, awfully large filing cabinets, and then they pull out one of those filing cabinets and it comes out a long ways, and there underneath a sheet of clear plastic is Mrs. Such-and-Such or Mr. Such-and-Such, and it's stunning. I was reminded, naked we come into the world and naked we go out. Death and its finality. Abraham was aware of the finality of death in ways that many modern men are not aware of, and yet in the midst of him viewing that death, a conviction began to grow upon him that God was a God who could overcome death itself. Now this was not just unique to Abraham. Actually, a contemporary of Abraham, and most commentators think somebody who was living some short while before Abraham was Job. And Job reveals that he had this same confidence that was welling up within him that God was a God who could overcome death and could make the dead alive. I thought about this. You know, Abraham lived before the testimony of Elisha who who brought a dead person back to life and Elijah who before that brought a dead person back to life and certainly before the Lord Jesus and his miracles of raising the dead and before his resurrection and yet before these things, Abraham had this confidence in God. How did that come about? We find that Job had the same confidence. And oddly enough, Job begins to lay hold of this confidence while he is struggling with his own sickness and his own pain and his own suffering and his own misery. And after he's been confronted with multiple experiences of death, the death of all of his livestock, the death of all of his children, and then the imposition of that death coming upon his own body. And Go to Job chapter 14. I'll read you again out of the New King James. Job chapter 14. Let me read to you verses 10 through 15 from the book of Job. In which in the face of death and in the face of the suffering that death brings, Job began to nurse a hope that God could raise him up. Here's what Job writes. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea, and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise, till the heavens are no more. They will not awake, nor be roused from their sleep. There's the sudden, stunning appearance of death. And then Job prays this, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. God, I'm the work of your hands and it's not going to be complete at death. And I'm going to wait for the moment. When you call me forth, again, as Job's sufferings endure, so endures and grows this hope that he would be brought forth before a redeemer who would overcome all of his misery and would overcome all his suffering and in the resurrection would grant to him life and benefit and blessing. And so in Job 19, you might turn over there for a second, Job's hope 
continues to rise and it culminates in the expressions of verses 25 through 27. And actually, if you read the book of Job, you'll see that the whole narrative of the book of Job begins to turn at this moment of profession that comes to Job, which hope begins to break in upon the story that's before us of Job in the midst of his suffering. Job cries out, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Now some commentators look at that passage and say, well, it says that I shall see in my flesh doesn't mean that he actually is hoping in a physical resurrection because it could mean that I shall see out of my own flesh. The problem is they didn't go on to read that I shall behold with my own eyes. (laughs) I shall behold with my own eyes these things. How my heart yearns within me. How did Job come by way of that confidence? How did Abraham come by way of this confidence or conviction that God raised the dead, that he regenerated the thing that had ceased to live? I am relatively certain that both Job and Abraham knew the account of creation, how God had taken earth and formed this inert mass of dirt and out of it called forth and brought forth a man. And how God had then taken one half of the man, you might say, or out of the man had brought forth and called forth the woman in the midst of his slumber. And maybe that is the point in the understanding that began to give them this conviction and this understanding that God brought life out of death. But I think it's something more than that. I think that we could begin to unravel this and understand this better if we understood and appreciated what the Bible means in Ecclesiastes 3.11. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, the Bible says that God has placed in man's heart eternity. In other words, there is this echo for eternity that demands a response that resonates out from the heart of man. And it's an echo for eternity, a longing for the everlasting. And it's a longing that is largely not reinforced by the nature that surrounds us. In the world in which we live, what we see is decay and death. And as we age and go through our lives, at some point in time, the tides turn on us. You know, when we were young, we couldn't wait to grow up. And then all of a sudden, we grew up, and then the next thing we found out, we're growing old. And then it starts advancing more and more rapidly, and we start realizing that we're being ushered away and brought to a time of our own demise, and all of us have before us, are facing before us, this physical death. As death surrounded them, as death surrounds us, our souls rebel against it. It's as though we're locked in a temporal world where time is seemingly running out and we pace back and forth before the bars of time, constantly looking into eternity, knowing that we were born with souls big enough for the unending and yet not released into the unending. We know that instinctively we exist for something more than the decay we see around us and the decay we see in our own bodies. A more that God who has made us, we reason must be powerful enough to bring us into. And also we see our weakening bodies that are wearing away and fading away at the gnawing of time itself. And we must ask ourselves, if my body breaks down in time, how will my body hold up in the eternity that my soul longs for? 
If my body can't stand before and wears away before the sun that beams over the earth, how will my body not stand before the sun and the brilliance of an everlasting eternal God? And at the same time, I know I'm called for these things. I know somewhere within me, there's resonating within me a yearning, a desire for eternal life, eternity. I think to a large extent, the sins that man commit and the fallenness of man is the pacing of man raging against the temporal nature of being, longing for the eternal. He doesn't find it in things he pursues as he paces back and forth. But he's stretching out and he's reaching his hand in vain attempts to lay hold of eternity. I think Abraham and Job began to see in the midst of their suffering and their sorrows and their weakness and their difficulties, they became believed that this longing was to be answered and fulfilled in God himself. A God who power to raise them up out of death had the power to give to their bodies and infuse their bodies with the enduring power to enjoy and embrace the eternity that they longed for, that they were made for. So Abraham, like Job, believed and was convinced in the regenerative power of God to bring life out of death. Now here's the next thing it says Abraham believed. He believed God was a God of decreeing and creative power. One who constructs the future out of his own plans. Nothing by accident. Everything by his decree. The Bible tells us that when God began to create the world, that the first thing he did was that he spoke into the darkness, and out of the darkness he called forth light. Now listen, there is no light in darkness. Darkness is incapable of producing light. Everything was dark and God spoke and out of the darkness God brought forth light by his own decree and this is something of the power, the creative power that Abraham is placing his faith in. Abraham knows that he is a man who exists because of God's own decree and God's own calling forth. We, by the way, can draw plans. We can make and plan the architecture of some building we want to build. In fact, if you were to go back into your grandfather's house or your parents' house, or maybe you even have them in your own house, a blueprint for something that you thought you might build one day, and it's just a blueprint. If you come into my office at my house, you'll find a blueprint for how we were going to change this church building to accommodate a lot more people. And then, well, certain things happened. The leaders of the city decided that this was a historical district and that this was a historical building. And as such... We couldn't lay our hands or touch any part of it. We had to leave it as it was. And well, that kind of changes the, the plans that you had laid out. And if I would go into my parents' house, I think up above in a closet somewhere, I can find the blueprint of a home that they were going to build when they moved from Washington, Boise, Idaho. And the blueprint is there. And it was a wonderful house. Periodically, I remember looking at it and thinking, how wonderful it's going to be to live in that house. And I never got to live in it. Never got built. We can make our plans, we can put aside our provisions, we can begin to excavate and think about it. Some men have even begun to build their houses and build their stadiums or build their great cathedrals. Another interesting thing is to travel around the world and find out that in most places around the world you'll discover these massive derelict buildings that people began to build and then they ran out of money or they weren't able to finish it and it's just sitting there, it's not completed. Well, here's God. A God who, in his mind, knows all of the potential products which he could assemble and put together a universe and a world and this world. A God who knows all the different ways and different factors that he might gather together and all the different possibilities and potentiality of what he might bring into existence 
And then God in his infinite wisdom chooses or calls forth one world in one way, a sequestering and gathering together out of all the mass unlimited potentiality that exists in his mind alone to create that one thing and bring it into existence. So we're here. So you're here. And so Abraham was there before God, before the stars. God knew that he came from the infinite mind of God. And Abraham learns before God that when God chooses to create something, he can bring that something into being and he can declare it as though it had arrived even before it arrives because God stands out of time. So God can look at something that he knows he's going to make and knows he's going to decree and he can speak as if it exists. When before us, it, we don't see it. It doesn't come about. Again, that's exactly what this phrase says. It says he calls those things that do not exist as though they did. William Newell informs us that the Greek literally means here he calls things not being, being. That thing is, that thing is. God makes alive the dead ones and God calls the non-existent things into existence according to his own will. And so here's Abraham, he's 100 years old, he's childless, he has a barren wife and God calls him the father of many nations. God doesn't say, you will be the father of many nations. He says, I make you, or I will make you the fathers of many nations. He says, I make you the father of many nations. We'll see later on that Abraham so believes God in this truth, so believes that God will fulfill his promise, that God changes his name, which means Abram was before that exalted father. God changes his name to father of many nations, Abraham. Can you imagine that? Here's a guy living in his tents. He doesn't have any children. He's got an old man with an old wife. He's not living in the cities that have been built around him. As everybody comes to meet him, they say, well, Abram, how are you doing? Exalted father, how are you doing? He's like, don't call me exalted father anymore. God's given me an indication what he's going to do. Call me the father of a multitude of nations. And he went by the name the father of a multitude of nations because he believed that God could call into existence or declare that things exist that he couldn't see, that he hadn't met yet, he had that kind of confidence in God. He knew that God had this kind of power, that God spoke things that were far off into existence, and the force of his word and his decree could not be denied. That's God. That's the God I believe in. A God who brings life out of death and makes the dead to live again, and a God who takes things that don't exist and have never been brought into existence and speaks them into existence and decrees it before we can even see it, and so it's so. Next thing I want you to see here is consider what Abraham believed God for. Now, that's what he believed in God. That was the ground of his faith. That's the promiser that he puts his faith in. But now see the promise that he lays hold of. See that it's a promise that goes beyond anything he might hope for. Romans 4.18. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken so shall your descendants be. See that so shall your descendants be? There's the focus of what it was he believed God for. That brings us back to that moment in time in which God took Abraham outside of his tent and told him to look up into the stars and God said, see all that galaxy of stars above you, innumerable stars above you, so shall your descendants be. I'm going to, from you, bring forth a galaxy galaxy of nations that are going to rise from you. Now that's rather incredible to believe. That's a pretty broad and wide and expansive faith to be believed. Let's just consider this for a moment. 
let's consider what God is promising to Abraham, which is being made to known to us. And we've seen a part of this so far in our passages that we've considered in weeks past. First, God was promising to Abraham that a nation would rise from him, the nation of Israel. And that it was a nation through which he would pour out a blessing, and from that nation he would pour a blessing upon all the nations of the earth. And so Abraham believed that God would, from his life, produce physical descendants that would become a great, vast nation of people. And he believed God for that. Now that's quite amazing, given where Abraham was at that given time. But also, what we've told and what Paul reveals to us is not only did Abraham see in that moment as he looked out upon the stars, so shall your children be, not only these physical descendants, but he also saw the rising up of a multitude of nations that would rise up from his faith. A nation of believing individuals who would come under the same blessing. A physical descendants that would be a blessing to all the earth, and then spiritual descendants that would inherit or receive as those physical descendants, God's unique, wonderful covenant blessings. And so he saw nations rising from him, from his own faith and his own belief, a wave of nation upon nation upon nation, a vast constellation of people rising up to give glory and praise to God. And who knows, maybe he saw that moment before the throne when the Bible says that those from every tongue and every tribe and every nation will gather in worship of God. Abraham saw that. But there's something else he saw as well in that moment. Something else that God gave to Abraham and Abraham believed God for at that moment. Paul points it out to us. That when God was making this promise to Abraham, that God gave Abraham a sight, not only of the physical descendants or nations that would rise from him, and then the spiritual descendants of nations of faith that would receive blessing along with them, but then God gave him a vision of the one through which all those blessings would be channeled and realized and accomplished. And so he gives him a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Messiah rising up from him. Galatians 3.16, Paul writes this, referring to Genesis 12.7 when God gives this promise that his seed and to his seed would be given these blessings. Paul writes this, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. God, speaking to Abraham, does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. And then Paul explains this. Who is Christ? This is the Christ. God, in the moment in which he was promising to Abraham that he would become the father of a great nation and descendants, a physical nation, and God who was promising to him that from him would be the spiritual seed of people that would be believing and coming under that blessing as well, God then shows him the one who will bring that blessing to all, a seed that will rise from as well, a physical descendant, one seed through which these promises will ultimately be fulfilled. And so Abraham saw the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, and the promise of God. He saw the one that was first promised to Adam and Eve. You remember to Eve it was said, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And he sees now that that seed that's coming to bring defeat of the enemy and bring life to him, that seed, that one is coming through him. Now, Jesus gives us a clearer understanding of what this means. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. And, and let me read to you verses 37 through 59. So we'll have to hold on to the passage a little bit longer. John chapter 8. Verses 37 through 59. You'll know the setting. The Lord Jesus is contending with the religious leaders. He's declaring to them who he is. They are rejecting his words. The conversation gets heated. 
And yet at the same time, the Lord Jesus is not backing away from what he is declaring to be true of himself and what he is saying is made known to them. And they are basically saying, you're not in a position to lecture us because we're the descendants of Abraham. We're of the children of Abraham. And in verse 37, the Lord Jesus responds, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because your word has no place in me. I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So obviously here, it's not simply a matter of natural descent, but a spiritual descent. But you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, and nor have I come of myself. But he sent me, and why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear, because you're not of God. And then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judge. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know you're a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones at that time to stone him because he made himself equal with God. Do you see this? The Lord Jesus said something about Abraham there. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, saw it, and was glad. That takes us out before that tent where Abraham looked up into the star and Abraham received this promise of God, a promise of a nation that, of descendants that would flow from him, a promise of a spiritual sea of nations that would rise up from him, a promise of the one who would bring the blessing to all of them and fulfill it, a Messiah that would come from himself. And he believed God for it and rejoiced and was glad. Now is that not rather an immense faith? That Abraham saw all these things and believed all these things and what did he believe against, by the way? What did he believe against? He believed these things, verse 19 says, in spite of his own weakness. Verse 19 of Romans 4 says this, and not being weak in the faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. The NIV actually has a better translation here. It's more accurate. It says this. 
without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. In other words, faith is not kind of believism. It's not just kind of denying reality. It's not speaking against reality. Abraham saw it. He was realistic. This was not simply a pipe dream that he had. This was Abraham recognizing realistically what his own limitations were. He's 100 years old. Think about it. He's lived with this wife for years and years, decades, without a child. And now the time has passed. And God has given this promise. And the promiser is one who brings the dead to life. And the promiser is one who can speak into existence those things who have no existence. And the thing that doesn't be as if it bees and as it was. And Abraham is realistic regarding his own identity and his own inability. But he believed against himself in God's self. He just believed in God. How was, Abel, how was Abraham able to hold on to that promise to the very end? Well, you know, he, he falters, he stumbles, he goes about it the wrong way, but still he holds on to this idea, this thing that even though he has doubts and even though he doesn't understand how God is going to accomplish it, he still trusts, he still believes that what God has made known to him will be fulfilled. And the reason he's able to do this is because, as we've said already, his faith is grounded in God. A God who makes the dead alive. A God who speaks nothing into existence. And as a result, he would not draw back from his faith in God. He wouldn't draw back. So, let's make an application to ourselves very quickly. Do you have the faith of Abraham? What's the ground of your confidence that you're saved and your salvation? Is it some act that you've done? Is it that because God has found something in you that he said, I can make something of that? I could take that. He's, you know, he's got a lot of problems, but I see this one little thing in him, and ah, if I could just isolate that and work on him, I could do something with that. Is that it? Some ground that God saw something in you that he could perfect and call forth? No, we're full of sin. We're broken. We're thrust in the darkness of our sin, and it's just collapsing in upon us. <laughs> we're this black star of darkness that God has found, and yet... God speaks forth out of it light. He creates what is not there. And that's our faith. We believe in a God that was our saving faith. Nothing I have, nothing I can claim, nothing in myself, but God, you can make the dead live. God gives us that faith. God gives us the faith to believe that God can bring to existence what we don't see ourselves. So that in believing Jesus Christ, we can believe that he has washed us and cleansed us of all our sins. That believing in Jesus Christ, we believe that God has given us an ability to stand before the God of all creation and not be destroyed. But instead call Him Daddy and Father and Abba. And enjoy Him. And enjoy Him not now, but enjoy Him through all eternity. So God says to Abraham, Today you are a father of many nations. He calls it when Abraham is still living in his tent alone with his wife Sarah, with no children. And God declares it as if it was. Then God saves us, and I believe in the Lord Jesus, and I trust in Him. And then God says something like what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, where God says that I am seated in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. God already sees me there. God already declares that I'm anchored in eternity, and I'm reigning in the heavens with my Savior Jesus Christ. Right now, He's declared it. It exists in the mind of God right now, and it cannot be altered, and it is sure, and it's certain 
Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Just go a few pages over and get another example of this. God says of Abraham in his tents, that old man that could produce nothing of himself, and God says, you are the father of a multitude of nations. Here's what God says to us. He says, moreover, in verse 30, whom he predestinated, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let me kind of walk you through this for a moment, just quickly. Predestined refers to the life that God decrees or declares over us. Just like God decreed and declared something over the life of Abraham. Called is when God takes us out from under the stars, and like Abraham, he declares it to us. He calls it, he, he calls it out to us. And then, as we believe and trust in him, just as Abraham believed and trusted in the promiser and the promise, we're justified. We're justified. Now, Abraham, at that point in time, says he believed God, it was counted unto righteousness. But you know what? Abraham was still alone in his tents with his wife. And yet God had declared he was already the father of many nations. God didn't say it's going to happen. God said it's happening. It's happened as if it were. And in this passage, it says not only are we justified, but it also says we're glorified. Glorification is referring to that day when we shall see Jesus. And the Bible says in that moment, we shall be like him for we'll see him as he is. It's in that day when we will inherit new bodies, resurrected bodies, and we will be able to live and thrive and be with him forever and ever, reigning with him in the glorified state. And yet in this passage, it doesn't say we will be glorified. God says glorified too. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. That's just as sure in the mind of God. Just as sure in the mind of God. Because what God declares to be true, what God says is so, is so. Is so. Now, stand before God that way. God, you raise the dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. God, you create new life. My life was so intertwined with sin, I couldn't break forward it, but in believing you, you made me a new person in Christ. God, you declare even now, I'm reigning with you in heaven. You have established my glory with you and declared it as accomplished and so. Ruling and reigning with him. You're still in your tent. You're still seemingly alone in certain circumstances. But can you, like Abram, now call yourself Abraham? Can your faith now apply that to yourself in this moment and declare it and live as though it were so? That's what I am. That's how I identify myself. Is your faith like Abraham's? Do you have the faith of Abraham? And if you do, what more do you need to sweep into that faith? Because you're still going to go living through your day. And you're going to have your trials and you're going to have your challenges. If that's your faith, what are you sweeping into it? What challenges before you in the past week or in the week ahead? Or what unanswered prayer seems to be lingering over your life one week after another week and one year after another year? And what difficulty are you facing? Or what trial is yours? Or how seem that you're in a temporal state in which you're behind the bars of time and peering out in eternity and you haven't yet inherited and you haven't claimed that thing? Or... What disappointment do you regularly deal with? Or what dashed dream lies before you? Or what calling seems to be unanswered? What acts of obedience are yours? In the face of even not achieving or realizing in the moment those things. Because Abraham had a step forward in obedience. Can you sweep all those things in to that kind of faith? 
the immensity of who God is. He brings life out of death. He speaks into existence things that do not even exist. His promise can be counted upon. His promise can be believed. His promises to me as well. Can you sweep that, all of those other issues in your life, into that? That's our call. That's our challenge. That's the demonstration of our hope. Can you, in a sense, live like Abram lived after that moment in time? Don't call me Abram. Don't exalt me and praise me. Don't say I'm a wonderful person. Say I'm a person that's inherited the glory of God. Say that I'm a prince with God. Say that I'm going to rule and reign with him. Say that I'm going to judge the nations. Say that the earth is already mine. I've inherited it. And I'll rest in that promise. Let's bow our heads. And so, the condition has not changed always for us, Lord. We rise to new challenges every day. What we seem to approach at times seems to go away from us. Abraham is going to be tested as well. It will be years before the son is born to him. It will be years after that that he'll be called upon to offer up that son to you. But he continued to believe in you, a God who gives life to that which is dead. For us, O oh Lord, our reference point is more than just the belief, but the belief substantiated in the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Through him, God, you promised to give us all things. You declared that they're ours. Lord Jesus, this is not a name it, claim it situation for us. This just a resting in the promise, a living in a quiet confidence that you will be true to yourself and you can be believed and trusted because of who you are. And so God, we come before you and ask that you would allow us by your spirit, your gracious spirit that gave birth to this faith and this faith that gives us life, allow us now to let that sweep over all the other issues that we might face in a week draw it into the grandness and grandeur and immensity of what we believed you for. For the individual, dear God, whose eye is still fixated on his failings and his brokenness and the, the uh, inability on his own power to escape the cycle of sin in his own life or her life, Lord, in this moment, in this hour, I pray that you would bring them out before you and believe, dear God, that you can give a new life through Jesus Christ or her new life through Jesus Christ and that they would just Accept it and believe it and receive it. I pray, your God, that gift might be granted to them in Jesus' precious name. Amen.